listening to the Long Hollow Young Adults Podcast. We are the Young Adults Ministry at Long Hollow Church, located in Hendersonville, Tennessee. If you are interested in learning more about us or looking to attend one of our gatherings, you can follow us on Instagram at LHYoungAdults or visit longhollow.com for more information. And now, a message from our Young Adults Pastor, Dylan Young. Let's pray as we start out. God, I pray that we would feel the heaviness of a video like that. And I pray that tonight we might start to see that your burden is light. And that following you as our God and as our Savior is a light burden to bear. Lord, would you bring clarity tonight through your word? God, would you help me not to come with compelling speech or words of wisdom, but only in the power of the Holy Spirit? I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were to come over to my house, when you walk into our living room, you're going to see a pretty sizable coffee table sitting there. And early in our marriage, Rachel decided she wanted this coffee table that she had seen in an ad somewhere, and we could not afford this coffee table. So she already had the plan in place. She had found the plans to make this table ourselves. And I'm thinking, I never made anything in my life. Like, there's no way I'm going to be able to create a coffee table that looks anything like that, right? But... The coffee table cost way more than making it would have. So we headed to Lowe's, we bought some two by sixes, we bought some table legs and a couple of the tools and we ended up making this table. And lo and behold, it actually ended up looking okay. And we were actually pretty proud to have it sitting in our living room. Now, six or seven years later and a few building projects later at our house, I've gotten better at making stuff. I've got way better tools than I had at the time. And, and I end up looking at this table. Every day I'm sitting there, I'm put, propping my feet up on it. And I'm thinking, man, if I made this table now, I could make it so much better just because I've learned stuff, right? And I looked at it long enough and thought about that table long enough that I ended up deciding to redo the whole thing. So I took it out to the garage. I laid some uh, towels down on the floor so it wouldn't scratch the table when I laid it on its top. Uh, I undid all 75-ish screws. I went back and counted so that I knew the number that it was a lot of screws that I took out. Took all the pieces apart. I re-sanded every piece of that table. I re-stained them. I put them back together, all 75 screws again. I laid on each board as I did it so that they could get as close as possible and they would be as flat as they could possibly be when I was screwing them back together. Put glue between the boards because I didn't even know to do that the first time. Restained it, let it dry overnight, right? And then the next day put some polyurethane on it so that it's got a little bit more protection. It's got a little bit more shine to it. Y'all, the original plans for this table said it should take about 20 hours to make. Now I move slow anyways, but as a rookie, it took me a whole lot longer than 20 hours and redoing the whole thing, we're looking at at least 40 hours, if not more, that I've put into this coffee table sitting in our living room. It was kind of an exhausting process and there were plenty of times I'm standing in the garage thinking to myself, why in the world did I decide to take this thing apart? But in the end, now as it sits in our living room, I can look at that table and be like, man, that actually turned out pretty good. 
It looks a whole lot more like the model table that you see in the catalog or that you would see in the store. And it's a heck of a lot stronger than it was before. It was worth it going through that process to take this whole table apart and to put it back together again. And I would imagine maybe some of you, as I told that story, can hear your faith journey somewhere in it. Maybe at the beginning, maybe at the end, maybe somewhere right in the middle. And you're somewhere on that spectrum. And I wanna talk about that over our next several gatherings together, wherever you may be on this spectrum of deconstruction, as we call it. And as we walk through this crisis of belief series, I want you to see that it, even in a time like today, when deconstruction is the buzzword of the day, it is certainly possible for you to go through a deconstruction process and come out stronger on the other side of it. To deconstruct your faith does not mean to walk away from it. And I want you to, I want you to hear that over these next several gatherings. Now, we are not trying to be dramatic with the title of this series. I don't know another word to use other than crisis when you see statistics like the videos on TikTok that have been hashtag deconstruction or ex-evangelical have over 2.5 billion with a B views. And it feels like people are walking away from the church all the, all the time. We know probably know people, you've heard the big names that have done it. I don't know what to call that other than a crisis. And if you're in the middle of the process yourself, it probably feels like a crisis of belief for you individually. So before we get into our passage tonight, I really wanna to try to set up our whole series well. And we need to do, honestly, a little bit of a deconstruction of the word deconstruction before we get going. So I wanna give you a few of my hopes. I wanna give you a couple of definitions so that you know where I'm coming from as we work throughout these next five gatherings. Um, and to begin, some of my hopes, my first hope is just to take the stigma and the fear out of that word deconstruction. We don't need to fear that word. The church doesn't need to turn a blind eye to it and pretend it doesn't exist. That word's okay. I wanna take the fear out of that word. I wanna help us see that we are all in a lifelong process of learning and growing in our faith. Like if you think right now that you have God all the way figured out and you've got it 100% right, you probably don't. We're gonna be in a process of learning more, getting closer and closer to what Jesus truly was like our whole life. It's a lifelong process. I want to address some of the reasons that people begin that deconstruction process in the first place. This will certainly not be an exhaustive list of things, but I wanna hit as many of those as I can to hopefully keep somebody from walking away. And then I want to hopefully provide us with a way forward. We can't just talk deconstruction and leave it there. We gotta figure out how do we actually go about this in a way that leads us closer to Jesus. So if, if, you, if you have doubts, if you have questions, I want you to see that that's okay. You can have those things. It doesn't make you any less of a Christian. It doesn't make you not a Christian. Bring your doubts, bring your questions. This is the place to bring them. That's the type of environment I hope we're creating over these next couple of months. Now, I want you to hear too a couple of disclaimers. I am not trying to call anyone out with anything I'm saying, but I do want to be very specific in some ideas that I think need to be called out. Some of them you just heard in this video, I'm about to say verbatim tonight. I'm not trying to call any person out, but I do want to call some ideas out. So if you, if you have issue with something I say, please hear me, I am all ears to hear your pushback on it. Um, and also I wanna say, I am not trying to get you to deconstruct. 
I'm not trying to glamorize deconstruction in any way. You don't have to go through that process. But what I do want you to do is become more of a deep thinking, diligent student of the word. And as you do that, you're probably gonna have questions you come across. And that's a good thing. We ought to be deep thinking, diligent, lifelong students of the word and the Jesus that we find in it. So as we, as we begin this, let's define that word deconstruction. Cause it, man, it has, you can define it however you want. You can find all sorts of definitions online and whatnot. So the way I am thinking about it, here's where I am coming from. The, the word, there's a little bit of debate where the original word came from, but from what I've seen in my study, it came from a guy named Jacques Derrida in the 18th century. He's a philosopher. And his idea was that uh, to deconstruct, we can't really know anything. He was not a believer. We can't really know anything because we can never get to the actual meaning of a word. You just deconstruct a word. He said, words are just signs pointing to signs. That was his process. You just, you get the meaning of one word. Well, then you just have to deconstruct the definition of that word. That was how he thought about it. That was where his term deconstruction came from. And uh, the term is used way more broadly than that today, though. It doesn't have to just mean that. Now, a guy named A.J. Swoboda, he has a book named, uh, called titled After Doubt. And this is how he kind of broke down deconstruction. I think it's a good way for us to think about it. You can have just general deconstruction. Like, you can deconstruct literally anything. Maybe not literally. We use that word too much, right? But, uh, like, my sons, the, the definition he gives is just undoing anything that's been constructed. So Ford, my oldest, he builds with magnetiles almost every day. And you don't even know what magnetiles are, but they're the modern day Legos, okay? Um, and then Boone comes along and he deconstructs his big brother's masterpieces and it does not go over well. There's deconstruction that happens in our house every single day. You can have, that's, that's just general deconstruction. You can deconstruct anything. Then there's a little bit more specifically philosophical deconstruction. So this would be uh, undoing of traditional cultural norms and values. So you're deconstructing a philosophy, if you will. Again, all kinds of examples of this. One that's really relevant to us today would be a philosophy of work. A lot of companies thought that work could only happen in the office, right? Then COVID hits and everybody had to rethink their whole philosophy of work. Lifeway is a great example of that. If you lived here a few years ago, you may remember their uh, big office building they had downtown. They imploded it because they had built a whole new building. It was a whole lot smaller. It was a whole lot nicer. They realized they didn't need as much office space because they could do some work remotely. Well, then COVID hits and they realized they can basically do all of their work remotely. So this shiny new building they have, they sold it. They used it for like two years and, and did, away with their, did away with their whole building. They did a total deconstruction of their philosophy of work and found out there was a different way they could be doing it. It's a philosophical deconstruction. Then the deconstruction we wanna talk about is a theological de deconstruction. So an undoing of one's accepted beliefs about God. If you wanna write that one down, a theological deconstruction would be an undoing of one's accepted beliefs about God. Now this, I do want you to hear, this is not just a Christian thing. You can be of another religion and deconstruct your faith in the same way. It could apply to any belief system. Um, now here, and I, you know, I know this is a lot of prefaces. We're gonna get to the passage in just a second. But my caution with anybody thinking about deconstructing, if you're in the middle of it, uh, wherever you are, deconstruct, the problem we run into is when deconstruction becomes the end 
De deconstruction is not a goal. It can be a means to an end, but it's gotta have another goal attached to it. Deconstruction can't be the end in and of itself. A pastor named Brian Zahn said this way, deconstruction seems to be a methodology that has no real end game. At times it feels like an invitation to endless cynicism. If as Christians, all we do is deconstruct, we eventually wind up in a world on the precipice of nihilism. So when we ask questions about our faith, just to ask questions, that's not productive, that's not helpful. But when we deconstruct with a goal in mind of getting closer and closer to Jesus, that's when we've got something potentially really beautiful on our hands. And that's the type of deconstruction we wanna do in this room. So I've basically started thinking about deconstruction in two different categories. Deconstruction being the overarching umbrella term with two different destinations underneath it. One would be an unhealthy deconstruction, which I would call a demolition, if we wanna keep our construction terminology. The other side would be a healthy deconstruction that leads you to a renovation. You got a demolition and a renovation. And you can end up in one of two places. And a lot of it's gonna depend on the goal you set out with in the first place. So to begin our time talking about this topic, what I wanna to do tonight is give you an example in scripture of a deconstruction gone wrong. Really a deconstruction that went straight to demolition. And then I wanna show you some examples also of people in the Bible who, man, they had doubts and questions and really struggled with some stuff and they ended up with a stronger faith than they had before. And I want you to see that it's okay to have all these questions and doubts and that you can, that you can still follow Jesus well with all of those things. So uh, the first idea, and Lexi, you just prayed this and you didn't even know what you were praying. I've scrapped the points, whoever's running slides back there. Um, I'm gonna redo the points as we go here. Um, so don't worry about putting those up on the screen. Lexi just prayed for it and it happened. But uh, the first idea I want you to start with, we're gonna be in Exodus 32. Exodus 32, and the first idea I want you to think about tonight is just if you're gonna deconstruct, deconstruct slowly. Deconstruct slowly. So let me give you the preface to where we are in Exodus 32 to give you some context. The Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for a really long time. God has saved them out of that through a bunch of really miraculous things that happened. One of those being the parting of the Red Sea, which maybe you've heard about before. So Jesus parts the Red Sea, the Israelites walk through on dry ground and they reach safety on the other side. Now they're in the wilderness and God has provided, he's provided bread and meat and water for them in the wilderness, again, miraculously. And the people now find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. So man, God's done some awesome stuff in their lives. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up to the top of Mount Sinai to get the 10 commandments from God. So Moses is up there, the people are just waiting on him to come back. And this is what we read in Exodus 32, verse one. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, Aaron was the priest at the time. They gathered around Aaron and said to him, come make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Verse two, Aaron replied to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool and made it into an image of a calf. 
Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. And early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to party. What in the world happened? How did they go from God just saved us out of centuries of slavery and has been providing for us and we've seen him do all these miraculous things to worshiping a statue of a calf? How does that happen? That sounds ridiculous to us, right? It's a truly baffling situation. And the first observation I would, I would want you to make about this is they're knowingly embracing a lie. They're knowingly embracing a lie. If you see in verse two, they've acknowledged that Moses is the one who led them out of Egypt. They call him the one who led us out of Egypt. And I would, I would argue they're acknowledging God in saying that. In verse five, they say, no, these are the gods who led us out of Egypt. They know it's a lie. They know it's a lie what they're doing and yet they still choose to embrace it. So we gotta ask the question, why? Why would they do that? Why would anyone do that today? Because we know it still happens today. People are willing to embrace things that they know are not true, but why would they do that? It happens for a myriad of reasons, but the reason we see here is simply that God did something slow. He did something that they didn't expect him to do. He took longer than they thought he should have. And unfortunately people, they decided to jump ship pretty quickly. And I think we can probably all relate to God taking longer on something than we thought he should, right? Well, I guess many of us have been in that spot where we feel like, God, what are we doing? Why is this taking so long? So why did they, why did they jump ship so quickly? Um, I, I have a lot of sympathy for them. I need to say that to begin with, because man, that stuff comes up in life that makes you ask the question, why, right? When, when Rachel's mother passed away a few years ago, man, that's a crisis of belief in our family. Like, God, why is this happening? Why, this was not the plan. This was not the picture that we had in our heads of what our future was gonna look like. Why in the world would you allow this to happen in our lives? And I'm gonna guess a lot of you are there right now or have been there at some time, or you might be in the future if you haven't been. I got some sympathy for him asking the question, why? Asking, having doubts about God. And my encouragement to you would just be when those situations come up in life that don't make sense, that make you question God or doubt God, don't rush through the process. Don't rush through that process. You don't have to get all of your questions answered today. It's okay if it takes a little bit of time. I mean, if you study the word of God, you're gonna see that our God usually works slowly. He usually works on us slowly, so we ought to deconstruct slowly. If we're gonna do that, we ought to do it on God's time. But the Israelites, they rushed to find something else. They rushed to find answers, if you will. They so quickly went, man, God's doing something that we don't understand. Let's just worship something else. Let's do something different. They rushed through that process. And we need to think about what they actually created here. Because man, this is not just a golden calf. This thing is so full of symbolism that we can relate to today. A few thoughts on this golden calf that, that is literally just constructed by Aaron. Some might say that this actually makes more sense than worshiping God because it's silly to worship an invisible God. 
And I hear that. My return question to that person, if that's you, would be, does it make, does the golden calf make more sense? Does worshiping this, is this better? Is this a better option, this God that you just watched Aaron make? He took your earrings and he turned them into a statue. This is the God you want to worship? Is this really a better option? Because I will take the God who can't be contained in a statue personally. That's the God I want to serve. That's where I'm going with my thoughts. Because friend, if the, if the object of your worship is something you created, brother, that's not a God. That's, that is not a God if it's something that you created on your own. You have to ask yourself, if you're thinking about walking away, you've got to ask yourself if what you're walking towards is a better option. You gotta ask yourself that question because the questions don't just go away when you walk away from one worldview. The questions don't just go away when that happens. So if this, if this is not a God, if this is just a created thing, like I'm saying it is, if this is not a God, what did they actually create here? What actually just happened? They got uncomfortable with the unpredictability of God, if you will. A guy named Albert Tate, he would call it God's disobedience to them. He didn't meet their expectations and they decided he wasn't a God they wanted to serve anymore. So they make a God, here's what it was. They made a God they could understand. They made a God that they could wrap their minds around that made sense to them, that obeyed them, if you will. They say their new calf is a God, but think about who the God really is here. When you, when you walk away from Yahweh God, the God of the Bible, when you walk away from that God, you inevitably are gonna make a God that is works-based. Here's what I mean. They make this calf and they can explain anything in life by just looking at that calf and making up an explanation for it. Life's good, you can say, hey, we're doing good, we're pleasing the God, he's doing good things for us, life is good because we're doing good. Life's tough right now, man, we gotta step up our game, we gotta do better because we're not pleasing this God that we've created. He's, he's doing, life is rough because he's punishing us for whatever. That's a works-based God and that's always the God we create when we, try to, when we try to create our own God. So here's what I want you to think. And y'all, we've got, we've got to learn how to think deeply. Like we've got to learn how to take a thought and take it to its end. You can't just have a thought and be like, yeah, that sounds good, I'll go with that got to learn how to take these thoughts all the way to their end. So this God that we've created, who actually has the power here? Your God has the power to make things happen. Okay. But he's only reacting to the things you do. If, you, if your God only is reactionary, okay, who has the power there? Think about it. Your God acts solely based on your actions. So where does the power actually lie? The power lies with you. You have made yourself God. That's what you do when you try to create your own God is you actually put yourself in the place of God. And y'all, that is exactly what the secular worldview wants you to think, even if you don't realize it. You are God, you are in control. Man, I wanna push back against that. <laughs> y'all, I realize I'm quoting verbatim what one of the guys said in that video just a second ago. And I humbly think he's wrong. For one, he switched the argument in the middle of the video, but... Yeah, I don't know what else to call it. If you are the one calling your shots on your own life, if your morality is whatever you want it to be, what else do you call it? You, you are God of your life. That's, that's, it, it is what it is. <laughs> this is the worldview that you've walked into when you've made yourself God. Why in the world would you let anybody else tell you what to do? 
You live how you want. The only caveats are don't harm anybody and don't judge anybody. So, yeah, this is, this is the guy in that video. His name's Rhett with the curly hair. And, and he's from a, YouTube, a couple of YouTubers named Rhett and Link. And maybe you're familiar with those guys. But a few years ago, on their podcast, they walked through both of their deconstruction stories. And they have, those two stories have really weighed heavy on me because I see so much of myself in them because they started life the same way I did. They grew up in church. They're heavily involved in the youth group. They knew God from an early age. They got to college. They're really involved in crew at, at their college campus as staff members and as students before that. Y'all, that's me. That is my story. And so I've listened to their stories and been just like, man, what happened? What in the world happened with those guys that we've ended up in two totally different places. And, and one of the sad things that Rhett said in, in his deconstruction story, as he said, he ended up deciding to step out of the Christian boat. And he said he didn't step into another boat. He just is floating in the water. And I don't know about y'all, that's a sad picture to me, to be nowhere. That's where he thinks he is at least. I would argue that he actually did step into another boat, whether he wants to say that or not. When you step out of the boat, you step into another worldview. You stepped into another belief system, and that's another boat. Nobody is just floating. You stepped into a whole other belief system. And, and here's what I'm trying to get at with, with everything I'm saying right now. If you want to walk away from the Christian worldview, your new worldview has to answer the same questions that got you here in the first place. The questions do not go away because you leave Jesus. You still have to answer those same questions with the new worldview that you want to embrace. And I would argue no other worldview answers those questions better than this one. Again, let me give you an example. I'm stereotyping here, I know that, but many people who subscribe to a view of relative morality, okay, so your morality is whatever you want it to be. It is relative to you, relative morality. Many people that subscribe to that also subscribe to the view of evolution. Here's how the, this is what I'm talking about, taking these thought process, processes all the way to their end. Here's how that goes. There is no God, we're here by chance. Our species has evolved over however many years to get to this point. Therefore, live however you want, just do no harm. Here's the sticking point. By definition, if we are just evolutionary creatures, then it makes no sense at all to be concerned with the well-being of others. If we are just evolutionary creatures, then the purpose of life, if there is one, is strictly to survive and to reproduce. Y'all, survival is not concerned with the, with the well-being of others. Somebody else is harmed, so be it. That's better for my survival. If you want to walk away and into a different worldview, you still have questions to answer. If you want to walk into those two worldviews, you've got to figure out a way to reconcile stuff like that. Please hear me. <laughs> you can walk away, but the questions don't go away. You still have answers to try to come up with. And man, I would tell you, Jesus is always going to be a better answer than anything you can find. Now, I know I've said a lot to those who have deconstructed, and I, and I want to shift gears a little bit. Let's lighten the room for just a second, honestly. Um, we've, we've talked about deconstructing slowly. We deconstruct slowly. The next thing I want you to see is that we need to deconstruct in community. 
We need to deconstruct in communities. We're gonna see what happens next in this story and how it could have been done in a better way. So when we deconstruct in communities, we do that because y'all, there are some things in life that do need to be questioned. There are good questions to ask. There are good ways to go about finding answers. And we need to talk about these things in community to find answers, right? And one of those things, I wanna make sure the guys in the room are aware of one thing that needs to be questioned in life. It's actually been around for a while, but it's just come to light. And it's this phenomenon called girl math. I've realized that I've been living in girl math for the last 10 years and I just didn't have a name for it. And now I got a name for it and it feels pretty good. Like the the most popular financial phrase in my house is, well, you gotta spend money to save money. You're laughing because you agree with it. If it's $5 or under, it's free. Like if you you had to buy it, if it was a purchase that you didn't wanna make, but you had to buy it, it really doesn't count against the budget, right? Those type ideas, y'all, if you, this is about my favorite. If you return something, if you return something, you actually made that money. It's as if you never spent it in the first place. It's magic. I love it. Uh, man, yeah, there are some things in life that I think need to be questioned. And that's one of them. So how do we go about asking questions though in our spiritual life? How do we do it in a healthy way when it comes to our beliefs about God, when it comes to how we follow Jesus? How do we support one another in a deconstruction process? So we're still in Exodus 32. I want you to jump down to verse 21. So God and Moses have realized what's happening. Moses goes back down the mountain to find the people in a frenzy worshiping this new God they've created. And verse 21 is where we pick up the story with Moses talking to Aaron. Exodus 32, verse 21. Then Moses asked Aaron, what did these people do to you that you've led them into such a grave sin? Aaron says, don't be enraged, my Lord. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I said to them, Whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were out of control for Aaron had let them get out of control. Let me read those last two lines again to you. This is what Aaron said happened. Whoever has gold, he told the people, whoever has gold, take it off. They gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. And we know Moses is gonna see right through that. He says, Aaron had let them get out of control. Unfortunately, I think Aaron might be a picture of the church when it comes to people in 2023 who are working through a deconstruction process. As I read that, I cringed. I was going, man, I think that's us at times. That we see somebody who's got questions that we're uncomfortable with. That was what was wrong with Aaron. He was real uncomfortable with what they were saying. He didn't know how to handle it, so he just passed it off. He blamed them. And way too often as the church, I think we see this word deconstruction. We don't really know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with the people who ask questions and have doubts in the first place. So we just say, eh, they got a lack of faith. They walked away and we blame them. Yeah, that can't be our response. That cannot be said of Long Hollow. That that can't be how we do things here. This has to be a place where questions and doubts are welcomed so that people 
renovate their faith instead of just demolishing it. It's got to change and it needs to start right here. So let's be that change. Cause y'all, there's a way to help each other through doubts. But here, here's the thing. I think this is why people don't do it. It requires time and it requires patience and it requires listening. And we're not real good at listening a lot of the time. I think maybe that's the beginning of a renovation process. I think it's just listening. I think it's you being willing to voice whatever the doubt or the question that you have is, give it a voice, and then having somebody else who's willing to just listen. Because y'all, I wonder how different this scenario could have been if Aaron had stopped and just listened. Like not, not ru- he, he rushed also. <laughs> the people rushed through their deconstruction process. He rushed to a solution. What if he just stopped and said, all right, let's talk about this. Let's pump the brakes and let's talk. You guys talk, I'll listen. And let's see if we can work through this. Because people didn't stop to see, man, maybe God's up to something here. Aaron could have gotten them to that place, I believe. So the church has got to be the place where questions and questioners are welcomed and they need to find listening ears rather than just quick, succinct answers. And here's why, because often questions of the head that people have, I think a lot of times they really come from a question that they have in their heart. And I think a lot of times we give really intellectual, heady answers when really people, their question is an emotional thing. And we've got to get to the root of where the questions are coming from and that requires listening. When we just answer people's questions, sometimes we don't help them out a whole lot. We'll get to the answers. I'm not saying don't give people answers. We wanna try to answer their questions, but man, listen to people, let them talk, let them get all their thoughts out. And then we can move forward from there with a renovation process. And I, and I want to, I wanna give you a couple of examples in my own life of kind of simple things where I've had to do this myself and community has really helped me. One of them being the clothes we wear at church. You might grow up in a pretty formal church. I did. And it was, the church itself was formal. We dressed formally. And when I started going to Pastor Robbie's church in Chattanooga, and I know y'all are probably laughing at this, but when I started going to Brainerd in Chattanooga, it was, it was a real struggle in my life to like sit next to someone wearing jeans at church. And it feels, it feels silly now, years removed from it, but man, I had to like actually think like, is this okay? Like, is it okay to just wear whatever you want to church? Like, is, is God okay with that? And I had the, Rachel's my community for all these things. I was married at this point, but I had to go back to saying, okay, what is Jesus okay with us wearing? What does Jesus, how does he want us to approach him? And I eventually got to a place where, okay, I think my faith is stronger because now I'm seeing that I think Jesus is okay with however you want to approach him. I don't think he's concerned with what people are wearing, so I probably shouldn't be either. And that is not a shot at you if you want to wear formal clothes. Go for it. We just can't be looking down on other people because they're wearing something that's less formal. Um, the other one would be baptism and how that goes about. When I, I don't think before I came to Long Hollow, I think the only baptisms I had ever seen were done by the pastor. Like he's literally the one putting them under the water. And when we started kind of letting other people, parents or friends or the person who led somebody to faith, when we started letting those people baptize somebody here, again, I kind of had to, I thought I was okay with it, but I'd just never seen it before. Like nobody had ever taught me that that was wrong, but I just had to go through this process of thinking like, okay, would Jesus be okay with this? 
let me search the scriptures and see if I see something that would prohibit this or would say, don't do that. And I, and I came out on the other end thinking, okay, I think Jesus is okay with this. And with somebody other than the pastor doing a baptism. And you know, those are, those are simple examples I know, but hopefully an example of a process you could go through. And hopefully that doesn't sound, I mean, that's a deconstruction of sorts. And I hope that doesn't sound so scary to you. And the key was that I had my wife to talk to the whole time. I had some type of community to work through those things with. And now, now thankfully, I've been in Hendersonville long enough that I've got good friends that I trust, that I think, think well, and I can go to those people with all sorts of questions. So my challenge to you, for one, you got to find community. You gotta find it. You hear it all the time, you were never meant to live this Christian life alone. You've got to find community. Man, just get into a life group. If there was ever a sermon series for you to join a life group in the middle of, this is the one. Well, please do that. Please seek that out. If you're not in the middle of a deconstruction process right now, your responsibility is to be a good listening ear. And your responsibility is to also be in community. So when that person comes around who has the questions, they can find you. They, they gotta have that person. And then, hey, when, it, when it's your turn, they're gonna be there for you too. You know, we've, we've got to be in community in general. Man, you've got, if you're gonna deconstruct, please, please do it in community. Don't just do it. You and YouTube are gonna figure this thing out. Do it, do it in community. Do it with friends. Do it with people who love you and want the best for you. Deconstruct slowly. Deconstruct in community. And the last thing I want you to see is that we need to deconstruct as a pursuit of Jesus. When we deconstruct, we've got to do it as a pursuit of Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. It's, it is not a bad thing for you to have questions and doubts. And that same guy, A.J. Swoboda, that I mentioned earlier, he's got a quote in his book that just says this. He says, to struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign that we actually have one. And if you don't have a faith, what are you wrestling with, you know? It's okay if you've got these questions and doubts. It's probably a good thing. probably shows that you've got a faith to begin with. And there are countless others that have gone through the process before you, many of which we see in Scripture. And here are just a handful of examples. Okay, Adam and Eve. Very first people. What's the problem they run into? Well, they doubt, they think God's holding out on them. They're doubting if God's really good in that moment. So they fall into the first sin. Joseph literally wrestled with God and came away with a limp, but he also came away stronger in his faith. Job had major questions about God and his goodness, right? And he voiced those questions to God very boldly. Now, did God answer every one of his questions? No, not even close. But Job still came out the other end better for it. Think about one of the disciples. We call him Doubting Thomas. We think that's his first name, right? He has that reputation for a reason. When you think about John the Baptist, y'all, John the Baptist, big figure in scripture, like he's the, the guy pointing to Jesus. What's he doing at the end of his life? He's sitting in a jail cell. He's thinking, man, this is not how I thought life was gonna go. And he's asking the question, man, Jesus, are you really the guy? Like the guy who's been pointing to him all along, he's got these questions too. And it wasn't that he walked away from the faith. He's just had questions. He's just trying to shore up his own faith. Even the disciples, after Jesus has risen from the dead, Matthew 28, 17, when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Doesn't even say what they're doubting, just says they doubted. This is the disciples. And if those guys can have doubts and questions, it's okay 
if we do too. <laughs> you're not alone when you have these doubts and questions. In fact, I would even argue you're actually in pretty good company when you have doubts and questions. Be okay with that and be okay voicing those things. The final biblical figure that I've thought about in, in this vein, and Rachel is actually who brought it to mind for me, for me was Mary, Jesus' own mother. We don't know a whole lot of details of her life, but we've got enough that I think we can say she had some questions, maybe some doubts. And Jesus is her own son, right? But here, here's what kept Mary going. Well, I'll get to that in just a second. Think, I want you to think about this. Do we see hardly any mention of Joseph, Jesus's father, past age 12? I don't see any mention of him. And everybody pretty much assumes it's because he died somewhere along the way. I want you to think about that scenario. Jesus's dad dies. Do you think Mary had some questions about that? Like Mary's probably thinking, Jesus, we can do something about this, right? And I imagine maybe they had a conversation like they had uh, when Jesus turned the water into wine. Maybe she approaches Jesus and says, hey, you, you're gonna save your dad, right? You're gonna save my husband. You're gonna heal him, right? And Jesus had to give her a response of, mother, it's not my time. Man, that had to be hard for Mary. That had to be really, really hard for her to try to wrap her mind around. Why she gave, if anybody should have had the cushy life, should have had the privileged life, you would think it would be the mother of God, right? She probably had some real questions. Here's what I think kept her going. Basically every instance we see of Mary in scriptures, she's pursuing Jesus. She's thinking deeply about him. Think about these instances, Luke 2, 19, Jesus has just been born. People are coming to visit them. They're saying all kinds of wonderful things about him. What does it say Mary does? Luke 2, 19, but Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. She's taking the time to think about it. Doesn't say she fully understands what's going on. She's meditating on it. Luke 2, 51, this is after Jesus, they've lost Jesus. That had to be a moment for them. They've lost Jesus and they go back and find him in the temple and, and Mary and Joseph are like, son, what are you doing? Why would you do this to us? And it actually says they're confused by his response. But in Luke 2, 51, here's what Mary does. His mother kept all these things in her heart. Again, she's, she's pursued Jesus. I mean, now she's thinking about it. She's pondering it. She's not rushing to conclusions. She's just thinking and dwelling on Jesus himself. Mark 3, Jesus has started his ministry. It's, I mean, this is so interesting, but his family at the time, they're like, what is he doing? And they literally said, Jesus is out of his mind. Again, they go pursue him. And their, their goal, they're thinking they're gonna bring him back home. They said he's out of his mind. So again, even when she's got questions, Mary is pursuing Jesus. She's going after Jesus. And who's there while Jesus is hanging on the cross? Not a whole lot of people, but Mary's there. And we see Jesus tell John, hey, this is your mother now, take care of her. And the more I think about Mary, the more I wonder if maybe she didn't have more questions than anybody. And maybe got less answers. That's, that's speculation, but we know she had questions. You, you don't just lose your husband and, and not ask why, right? You don't, you don't just uh, go through all the stuff she went. I mean, she's watching her son die on a cross and, I, and she had to have thought, Man, this is not what I thought it was gonna be like when the Messiah came. 
She's got to be asking some of those questions. Here's the thing that kept her going. She, she may have asked a whole lot of questions, but she also knew Jesus better than anybody else did. She knew him because she constantly pursued him. She never, she never strayed from that. I think she probably kept up a consistent pursuit of just the wonder and the beauty of who Jesus was. I think that's why Mary was able to stick it out till the end. One of the reasons, at least. Um, you think about the Israelites, man. They had a question about God and just so quickly turned away. Whenever Mary had questions about Jesus, and she kept turning towards him. She kept walking towards him. And her goal was not to get the perfect, satisfactory answers to every question she had. Her goal was Jesus. So that is my encouragement to you all as we start this series, as we ask questions, as we wrestle with all sorts of stuff. The, one, the most important thing for us to keep in mind is just Jesus himself. Let's be pursuing Jesus. We, we, go, we evaluate our beliefs in a pursuit of Jesus. So if there, if there is some belief, Jesus, that needs to go that is not true to you, so be it. I'll let go of it. If there's a tradition I have, if there's a way I'm living that doesn't honor you, that is not true to who you are, that doesn't represent you well, Lord, I'll lay that down. Let's be willing to do that as we walk throughout this next couple of months together and then hopefully for the rest of our lives. Man, let's, let's constantly pursue Jesus and get as close to the real Jesus as we can possibly get. It's this lifelong pursuit following after Jesus. Man, whatever needs to be refined, Jesus, let's do it. Deconstruct slowly, deconstruct in community, deconstruct as a pursuit of Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that in this room right now, you might bring a peace and a comfort to anybody who has questions. Maybe somebody who's been afraid to even think the question that they have. God, I pray that you would help all of us in here to start to be good listeners. That we will be able to sit with our friends and wrestle along with them as they search for you. And Lord, would you help us to do a good job of not just questioning, just to question, but that we would question in pursuit of something, that we would question in pursuit of a more true faith. And Lord, you tell us that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And I pray that when we do that, when this room hungers and thirsts for righteousness and when they want more of you, God, would you honor that? And would you fill them when they seek you out? Lord, thank you for the free gift of salvation that we have through you and your death and burial and resurrection. And when you took the place on the cross for us, Lord, would we... God forbid anybody in this room would see it as freeing to walk away from that free gift that you gave us. Lord, would you help us to support each other well? And we do it all in your holy name, Lord. Amen.